It's been, it's been a very interesting two years, uh, very challenging, but also having lots of opportunities. Um, if you recall, when I left, one of the things that I said about the AU was that it was really funded by donors and not funded by the AU members, members themselves. And therefore, what you do tends to be what the donors want. And so I said that we would have to look at that. And I'm glad to say we've worked on it. And this year, January, the heads of state accepted in principle that they will pay 100% for operational costs, 75% for programs, and 25% for the peacekeeping. But they phase it over five years, which is a, um, a very big step because up to now, they've been paying about 50% for operational costs and almost nothing for programs and almost nothing for peace, for peace operations. And so now we're working on the modalities of how they are going to do that. Uh, and that's something that I, I really feel will move the AU a step forward. And also I, say, I talked about infrastructure and... We just signed um, an MOU with the Chinese on rail, highways, aviation, and industrialization. Because one of the reasons for the existence of the AU is integration. But how can you integrate if you are not connected? There are, con- there, there are capitals on the continent where you can't drive from one capital to the other. You don't have rail and you hardly have a, a, a transport. So that's one of the things that I think we should really do to connect the capitals of the continent and the commercial centers uh, through rail, road, and and, 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 uh, and of course industrialization is very important because if we keep sending raw materials out, you are exporting the raw materials with the jobs that would have been created if you were adding value here and beneficiating them here. But you are also exporting them with the revenue that comes with finished products. So, and why the Chinese on the infrastructure, they are the leading country in the world on rail, on highways. So uh, we thought that's the way to go. Mm. Uh, Are you not concerned, though? Is the AU not concerned about uh, the pervasiveness of the um, uh, Chinese activity on the continent? Well, I think it depends what they're doing. If they are building highways and railways, it's a good thing. Uh, if, If nobody else is doing it, if the Chinese are doing it, why not? Um, and nobody has all along said they prevent pervasiveness of Western countries extracting our minerals and all those things. So I think we should just work with them as a partner as long as we have a, a proper contract with them, like we have agreed that they will establish a training center for if, if we're going to go on with those projects with them, we have a training center here in Africa and we have a research and development center also in Africa. So that as we go along, uh, some of the components will be um, manufactured here so that there's local content and not 
everything brought lock, stock, and barrel. And I think if you if we do that, then that's fine. Dr. Tlamini Zuma, you've also, you know, unfortunately had to um, be in that position when you had the worst Ebola outbreak. You've also had the intensification of the Boko Haram insurgency over this particular period. How have you dealt with those two incidents? Well, Ebola, of course, initially, the, the World Health Organization told all of us that they would be able to uh, get it under control. They didn't need uh, a, anyone doing anything else. So we waited for them, but it became clear around July that it's not getting uh, under control. And we decided as the AU that even though it's not our core business, it's the core business of the World Health Organization, but in, in our continent we have to do something. So we decided that we mobilize health workers because we had many people in the world except the Cubans saying they are going to bring infrastructure, they will build treatment centers. But nobody was talking about health workers because these countries, to start with, didn't have enough health workers. And of course, they lost a lot during the early phase of the epidemic because they didn't know what they were dealing with. So we mobilized health workers from the continent. Now we have more than 800 uh, workers there, and we, we, we're probably going to have a 1,000 soon. And that's, we think we've made quite a difference by sending these health workers to the three countries. And we've also raised funds, and we hope that South Africans who want to assist us in the fight against Ebola are actually SMSing uh, to 407979 so that they can donate uh, 10 rands to the fight against Ebola because we mobilize the, the network operators to assist us to create a platform so that um, our citizens can also assist us with raising funds because when we send health workers, we have to train them because none of them have worked with Ebola. We have to train them, we have to fly them there, we have to look after them, pay them once they are there, and of course fly them back when they are done. So it's quite a, um, an expensive exercise because we don't want to put the burden on those countries because they are already overstretched. So we think we, we've really made a difference both in terms of raising some funds but also sending health workers. And the epidemic is actually, we, we have turned the corner. We, we are not uh, out of the woods completely, but we have turned the corner in all three countries. And then when it comes to Boko Haram, what delayed us was that Nigeria kept saying they, they really, they thought they could deal with it themselves. But now we have decided that um, we, we all have to work together because they've not been able to deal with it themselves. And now it's affecting neighboring countries as well. So the AU, uh, working together with the neighboring countries, uh, and of course Nigeria, um, is working together to actually uh, see what we can do about Boko Haram. And the neighboring countries that are very active, of course, Chad um, and Cameroon, and Niger is also affected. 
uh, Chad has already got a, a quite a sizable force there, and they are working very hard to deal with Boko Haram. But all four countries will be working together. Benin has decided to join. So we think that um, I don't think it's going to be easy. It's going to be just a walk in the park, but something will, will be done and is being done. Mm. Um, I just want to uh, bring it back to, you know, um, a, a story that has made headlines all week. And I'm sure you are aware of the Al Jazeera reports of an alleged plot to assassinate you, Dr. Lamini Zuma. Now, you obviously were aware of this uh, at the time when this plot was said to have been uh, plotted against you. I think let's just treat this thing as, you know, um, intelligent information. And I didn't see anything happening. I continued with my work. And so I I just, I, I, I just don't know whether it was true or not. So, But I you were know. told that there was a plot. Let me just say, I continued doing my work. I was not affected by anything. So I think let's, let's, let's leave it like that. And the, the, the question, though, is uh, Dr. Nkosa Zanat Lamini Zuma, because it would seem as though these spy cables are being released, you know, piecemeal. So uh, eventually one would think that we would uh, be able to see exactly what went on. But were you told at any stage who the plotters were and why they wanted to assassinate you? I don't think anybody knew who were they, who were they and why. I, I I don't even think anybody will know. I don't even know whether it was true because, I mean, these things come from people. Whether they were true or not, I don't even know. So they didn't intensify security around you? There was nothing different? You just went on your daily business as you did all along? If, if you recall, this thing happened just as I arrived in Addis. And um, according to, I mean, it's 2012. And the, the, the security, of course, when I arrived, I had people who came to assess what kind of security I need to see what the AU provides so that we can see whether there is any um, need. And South Africa, of course, uh, has always felt that they needed to also have South Africans so I do have South Africans and Ethiopians together. Well, will you be seeking a second term as a EU uh, Commission chairperson? I don't know about that. I was elected for four years, and that's what I'm concentrating on. And just looking at the situation back home, uh, domestic politics, do you think that South Africa is now finally ready for a female president? Well, I don't know about finally ready. I think um, since the 40s, at least in the ANC, women had the right to choose to elect and to be elected. And so I think women have always had that right. And I don't think they were less ready at any time, but it it just so happened that we had uh, chosen male presidents. So I think... Women have always been there, and they are ready, they have a right, and so I don't think there'll be 
I don't, I don't know what people mean when they say, are they ready? Well, we've been told previously by organization, by affiliates like the ANC Women's League that uh, the South African women were not ready. But now, you know, finally, uh, that's why I'm asking, is it finally the case? But also, if you were called upon by the membership of the African National Congress, would you take up the position and uh, contest an election to become the first female president of South Africa? Hey. Well, as you say, it's the ANC that decides, um, and so the ANC will decide, and whatever they decide will be done. But if you were asked, if, if, if the members called upon you, would you take up uh, you know, that challenge? Would, would you actually stand to contest an election? Why don't we cross that bridge when we come to it? <laughs> <laughs> If the ANC decides, I think I've answered this. So if they decide, you will accept? If the ANC decides, I've I've not defied it up to now. That's why I'm in Addis. Okay. I don't don't defy the ANC.